This is the School of Podcast, where we talk holy shit about what it means to follow Jesus in the sacred chaos of the 21st century. My name is Benjo. I'm a 20-something anarcho-whatever-pastor committed to creating safe spaces for figuring out faith, doing the work, and getting up to holy mischief wherever and whenever we need to. I don't have anything else to say, but for the next chunk of time, I'm just a talking head on the podcast. Thanks for listening for some reason. Good luck. Let's get into it. Okay, so I guess we'll just hop right into it. So I was going to do a whole episode to talk about what scubula means in Greek and why I'm making a podcast and the heart behind it and the nice little warm fuzzies about that. But really, I don't have a reason why I'm doing this. The world doesn't really need another podcast from a dude. But here I am doing it. Honestly, I just have something I want to say. And in comparison to what I want to say, that first explainer episode just sounds a little vanilla. So if you guys want it, I don't know, maybe I'll do it. But we're just going to go for a little polar bear swim. I want to jump right into the frigid waters and abject terror below that is the evangelical machine, which if you know me at any level, I'm not a friend of the evangelical machine. But since I am so publicly against the evangelical church, even though I'm a legitimate Baptist minister, Southern Baptist minister and biblical scholar trained within the evangelical tradition in in history and poetics, people hear me make noise about the evangelical church and what it gets up to, and they think I'm an atheist or I've gone off the rails or I'm backsliding or whatever, and that's honestly so effing dumb. But, but that being said, I wanted to do a quick little crash course of this gallery of atrocities that is the white evangelical church. Purpose being to show us the prison, to show us why we should be horrified, and to show us why we ought to leave the evangelical church to rot and aggressively oppose it at every turn. This isn't uh, about deconstruction for me. I don't give a shit about that. This is not about reclamation or uh, like a return to the ancient faith. I also don't give a shit about that. This is about discerning the through line of the story of scripture if you believe in God, and uh, keep in step with the Spirit throughout the process of that thing. Brass tacks. I live in the 21st century as a Christian in a world in which we are growing increasingly aware of the multiplicity and the complexity of the, the, the soup of the world in which we live in. I'm just trying to account for that while still locating myself in the Jesus tradition. So the question starts, what do white evangelicals what are they? What do they want? What are they? What do they get up to? What is their hope? So my hope for this series of about 10 episodes, uh, the series of me shouting through your speakers helps to make a lot of sense of some of the questions you've got laying around the floor of your quarantine cave as evangelicalism slowly melts into oblivion uh, while kind of rising up in the ashes like a freaking twisted phoenix. But whatever. More importantly, I hope that this series provides a frame for that damned ecosystem in your head, that evangelical uh, set of gears that just keeps churning and churning and churning, and it gives the monster some sort of shape. 
it's like finally finding that the shape of that Lovecraftian horror, uh, you know, that's seeping through the dimensional point, whatever. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore, but hopefully it gives the monster some shape in the hopes that understanding the shape of the, the monster allows us some permission to change our relationship, relationship to it without guilt. Hopefully we'll see the monster of evangelicalism framed as a series of interconnected events and figures and influences and all that mess that when zoomed out actually appear like they have nothing to do with each other. But when we thread them together, it gives you a real intimate sense of that holy shishi kaka, and it is horrifying. At least it should be. Um, but at least it would make sense why it exists. <clears throat> so, basic roadmap. We'll try uh, to take a few episodes each to analyze, in the easiest way, separate contested zones of the evangelical cult relationship to things. First, we're going to take a look at the relationship to the future touching on things like climate change and the tendency to apocalypticism and why evangelicals love making apocalyptic death cults, um, then that will segue us into the arena of knowledge, of science, and the evangelicals' favorite thing, science denial, and, and bleeding into things like private schools and alternative education and homeschools, and unfortunately the racism that ties alternative education from the Christian perspective to science denial. Next is the realm of sexuality, which honestly doesn't need any explanation there. We've all been thoroughly effed by the evangelical moral network of uh, the Christian sexual ethic. So no explanation needed there. Uh, the church has done a good uh, job, good enough job of branding itself in that regard as complete idiots. Next, the opposition to reality and the practice of escapist fantasies touching on conservative and liberal media and the Christian persecution complex. Finally, we'll get to uh, society as a whole uh, on populism and their use of fascism and the Christian circle tendencies towards racism. Um, so today's episode will lay the theoretical groundwork and give a bit of the context to what we'll be hashing out and exploring. But first, just a little word about me. I am a virtual nobody. I haven't written anything worth reading. I have no books, nothing like that to speak of. I hold degrees in ancient history and ancient languages and the narrative poetics of ancient Semitic literature, but nobody gives a shit about that. Uh, my work is an interdisciplinary mix of history and literary studies. I dabble in critical theory and theology and religious studies. Political philosophy is a newer thing for me, but I'm still interested in it and a few other things. Uh, as a human being living on this flying space rock, I consume music and food and drink like I'm a gravity well. I also write poetry sometimes. But my goal, though, is always to make theory and education public, to take these complex ideas and distill them and make these theory theories and histories publicly accessible in a forum for dialogue and, and community change as a goal. Um, and I don't think that happens anywhere other than over coffee, which is just hard to do now. Um, but we live in these deeply dangerous times. And frankly, we don't have time to play games with ideas that simply do not work just for the hell of it. And we need to learn about the forces that carry so much power to enact so much turmoil in the world. So this is going to take a big bite at one of the forces of societal generation today, at work today. And we call this white evangelicalism. 
So I do not think that we should casually dismiss white evangelicalism as some sort of irrelevant, revanchist group that is represented by a dying generation, that it's going to just fade on, go quietly, gently into, into the night. It's certainly possible that our crises today will resolve themselves through natural processes like death of an older generation, like when the evangelical older boomer peoples will pass away and one generation dies off and we take the reins or Gen Z takes the reins. It's possible. That's a pretty freaking risky gamble because of the old secular hypothesis, secularization hypothesis, for instance, that told us that the world would continue to keep learning and progressing beyond the need for theism. But this proved desperately short-sighted in 9-11, when 9-11 fatally wounded any sort of secular optimism about the end of fundamentalisms in the world. So after that slaughter in New York, America clapped back in an immeasurably worse retaliation, a grotesque violence that was just drenched in theological desire. And we cannot pretend that religion is just going to slumber and fade away. We find ourselves in this pivotal moment today because uh, perversion or mutation, no perversion of, or mutation of any faith in the past has ever, ever, ever held a candle to the destructive potential of white evangelical America today. And I'm recording this the week of the inauguration of the United States 46th president. And we're still reeling from four years of a megalomaniac president. And if we're not careful, we'll slip right back into the covert structures and efficiencies of evil. I'm tempted to evoke the, the Arendtian notion of the banality of evil here because mass evil today doesn't happen like a killing spree anymore. But as programs designed as throwaway campaign slogans, mass evil today is bureaucratic, it's indifferent, and it's deadly efficient. So why am I doing this? Why am I talking in, a, in, in this mic? The project is all about, uh, for, well, first of all, numerous encouragements to make this project real is certainly one of the reasons. But this project is trying to say something substantial for my peoples, people who actually give a shit what I have to say. Um, and we have really great conversations. I'm not trying to talk about a particular moment which will soon pass but instead about a plague of turmoil which will persist long after some particular administration or movement concludes. Knock on wood now that Donald Trump is out of office and Christian fascism is still on the high. The plague itself is the thing that needs the analysis. So us peoples who are now mid to late 20s, we were politically formed in three historic moments. The first was the Great Recession, along with its inadequate res uh, resolution. Uh, it was an immense and tragic loss of the future. It was an incomprehensible trap of debt and the obliteration of possibilities for a generation. And the counterpressure of Occupy Wall Street, wherein the thin veil that obscured the horrors of capitalism to the modern West and the coastal elites seemed to lift for a moment, and the norm of not publicly speaking ill of capitalism seemed to boil over, and we saw it live. And so what I saw was just how little concern the boomer generation felt for the prospect of millennials like myself. And it told me something about the accidentally banal cruelty possible without any hint of malice for them, from them. They were capable of just treating the loss of future like passe, like, you know, like a throwaway notion. 
Second, a more visceral uh, awakening occurred following the murder of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin, along with so many others, in the Black Lives Matter protests following these events. I caught a glimpse of my privilege, even as a Filipino male, learned, uh, learned that there were so many things that I couldn't see which would require me to listen. I also saw droves of white crowds justify murder. I watched it while even relatives and friends uh, expressed their hopes that those of us marching in the streets would be run down by traffic. I saw how truly controversial white people could find a simple request that a black life matter equally to any other life where officers of the state are concerned. And the final moment is still unfolding. We're still living in it. And it continually teaches me that no evil is too much for the culture in which I was raised. In 2016, I wrote a shitty systematic theology paper on psychoanalysis and religion and populism in the midst of a presidential campaign, Donald's. It was a peculiar time to discuss a topic, uh, such a topic, since the United States hadn't really had a genuine populist movement in so very long, yet there were vigorous movements simultaneously on the far right and center left. I had assumed um, that my research would just yield nothing more than a theoretical footnote to a bizarre period of quote-unquote alt-rights, you know, and then in Antifa. And then when in the early evening of Tuesday, November 8, 2016, the world, at least America, felt a collective shock as we realized that the polls and the forecasts were wrong, and then suddenly my research felt like it took on new meaning. In the aftermath of Donald's election to presidency, I began hearing a familiar series of questions about white evangelicals that sort of drive why I ended up burning my allegiance to this crooked faith down to the ground and why I'm still sitting at my desk talking to myself for a podcast screaming burn Babylon down. The questions go something like this. Uh, do they just not grasp the notion of hypocrisy? That Christians are hypocrites? Why the praise for charlatans and belligerent men like Donald Trump? How could they not accept evolutionary or climate science? All the scientists are saying this. Why do they mock expertise and defund education? How can anyone inflict their children with conversion therapy? Why do they find the wildly popular act of sex a threat to their society? Where does the desire for fascism come from? And to each of these questions, my response traditionally had been a complicated historization of problems impossible to analyze in the abstract, which is why many of my colleagues and folks who work in ministry have a hard time understanding my revulsion to evangelicalism. But it is because these contradictions are networked and reinforced in doing precisely what they are designed to do within a large ecosystem, that's precisely why it makes it so hard to see without purposely looking for it. The reactionary liberal uh, fantasy suppose, supposes that evangelicals are just idiots, dupes in need of education. If they could go to school long enough, then they would, uh, they would realize that deep irony. And this is a deep miscalculation on the part of the secular liberal because it misses a neo, it misses, it misses a point. Liberalism is not going to save us. Sadism and masochism invigorate the destruction machine resonating with neoconservative militarism and neoliberal economics, and this base and invigorated drive cannot be resolved by fact-checking or just going to school long enough. There's a, there's a deep 
animalistic lust for cruelty and cruelty operates not at the level of information but at the level of desire so if you know me then you've come across me acting on one of the fundamental axioms of my work not the hermeneutic of wonder but that we are not subjects who desire to know but we are subjects who desire full stop so here it comes um this is the brunt of the argument really Um, one would think that we would want to avoid turmoil at all costs. But on the contrary, what I think has happened is that turmoil is enjoyed as the whole goal in the evangelical tradition. Okay, that's really hard to believe. It's a really stark statement. So let's just step back. White, let's just step back and then talk about white evangelicalism. We say all the time that white evangelicalism is on the decline, okay? But it is not dead yet. So today, Christians make up of Uh, about 71% of the U.S. population. White Christians account for 43% of the population, and white Protestants account for 30%. So how many Americans are white evangelical Protestants? The estimates of the percentage vary, but so far as I'm aware, the Public Religion Research Institute provided the lowest estimate at 17%. That's a significant drop from 23 back in 2006. We also know that over a third of whites identify as born again. So there seems to be a specific revulsion associated with the term evangelical. In other words, we're talking about at least 17% of the population, uh, at the very least, who are uh, evangelical. But understand that there's almost almost certainly a far larger part of the population that are inflected and flavored and influenced with evangelical sentiments and ideas. And because of that, it will prove much more difficult to measure. But understand that white evangelicalism is not entirely unjustified in its paranoia of its decline. Uh, Evangelicalism knows that it's a faith that is dying, uh, and and its knowing is, is, is like exciting it. However, practically all research on the nuns, uh, those who claim no religious affiliation, indicates some sort of resilient piety among the faithless, uh, which, is, which suggests that the cultural and theological influences extend well beyond those who claim the name evangelical. For instance, many of the nuns will say that they aren't Christian, but they do pray regularly and have a personal relationship with Jesus. Additionally, many beliefs incubated within the faith of evangelicalism proliferate well beyond evangelical confines or even the walls of a church. So now there's a massive generational gap given that 26% of older boomers are white evangelicals and while only 8% of younger evangelicals identify as the same, uh, younger millennials identify as the same. So there's a huge gap in, in population. But then finally, because of that generational gap, there's an expectation that things are going to change in terms of the future of evangelicalism in the new generation. Because when the 26 goes away, the 8 will be able to renew, okay? Renew and reform and make a beautiful evangelicalism in the new generation. So I just want to take a moment to take that cute little optimistic hope and just crush it underfoot. Namely, uh, because, namely, because there's this whole repetitive journalism genre in which young evangelicals are highlighted and their beliefs are being interrogated. It's on YouTube and BuzzFeed, as if to suggest that the next generation will moderate the future of evangelicalism. 
And this genre erupts every so often with a viral story shared about a social me- shared on social media. And each time the structure is relatively the same. And because the structure is the same, the prediction is just as futile as the previous version of the argument. So I don't have data to back my claim up here, but I'm going to make it all the same because it, it really does make good sense of the data. Uh, so here it is. White evangelicals in the new generation will not moderate the future of evangelicalism. Maybe evangelical, evangelicalism may die off. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. But no new generation will moderate a religion that is built on whiteness and the stature and... Uh, Uh, pre-forgiven chosenness of evangelicalism. No new generation is going to try and even touch that. If this faith continues to decline and this podcast becomes a stupid thing that exists and irrelevant in the years ahead, then I'm going to consider it a goddamn mercy. But white white evangelicalism is uh, practically a young faith. Evangelical pastors love to pretend they're tapping into the ancients. And uh, so would reject the statement that I just made that it's a young faith. Um, as, a politi- as a political project in current form, evangelicalism stretches no further than the mid-20th century. And, the latter, and in the latter half of the 20th century, a coalition forms between neoliberal capital interests and segregationists, between new Calvinist Christians and conservative Christians. And then that, those four sections merge into this homunculus of theological desires, merged into a novel iteration of the, the Church of Christ, evangelicalism. The first hints of this coalition, as I see it, was in the political production of the failed Goldwater campaign in 1964. And its emergence as a powerful force was on display with the religious right of the Reagan era. Its perfected final form, final boss form today is Trumpism. This era of theological doctrinal formation is characterized by fad belief systems. Like this, this entire evangelical project is just a fad belief system. Uh, and one of the things that forms the shape of evangelicalism as a doctrinal uh, a system is the, the constant picking up and throwing away of fad belief systems that are quickly abandoned and then picked up again and then abandoned and picked up again. And and aside from that odd moment of disposable fad theological structures, the only thing that is suturing this Frankenstein faith to anything historic is its commitment to whiteness. And I commit this series to underscoring how whiteness, even if we don't, even if the people don't use that term themselves, uh, that the whiteness curates the commitments that they genuinely believe are rooted in faith. So I won't delve laboriously into psychoanalytic theory uh, throughout this series because I don't want to waste your time, but I should classify some of my theoretical scope. Uh, In the introduction, uh, uh, the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan Lacan is my primary point of reference here. So uh, we will psychoanalyze turmoil and fantasy to examine the different kind of collections and mergings of racism and populism and faith and capital and try to like pull them apart so we can see. But we will refuse to listen too closely to the justifications of these uh, evangelicals for why they do what they do. Instead, we will read their actions as evidence of the desire. Meaning, uh, I will look at their actions now and whatever mental gymnastics uh, and beautiful social media platforms they utilize to justify their actions um, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. 
all the religious activities we will discuss uh, are locations of enjoyment, although the enjoyment will often incur some sort of turmoil and anxiety. So this is just, you know, kind of broad spectrum psychoanalytic theory. So one interesting thing to consider uh, is the shame-heavy rhetoric. That shame-heavy rhetoric can be boasting in disguise as a type of defense mechanism. For example, when today's Calvinist tells us that they are sinners saved by grace, they do not experience shame, but instead turmoil, far, far from shame. They are boasting uh, that they feel the turmoil of God's judgment, and they enjoy that alongside the confidence that even though they feel the turmoil of God's judgment, they are predetermined for salvation. So the catch is that all of this um, Calvinist quote-unquote shame is just turmoil enjoyment that is narcissism justifying their indifference to the world at best and cruelty at worst, turning inward to obsess over their own standing with God ask whether they are destroying everything around them. They are pre-forgiven and pre-chosen. But here the unconscious will speak, and we need to listen to the voice of the unconscious expressed through their action. So much of what we'll be exploring are fantasies. And the term fantasy is not something I mean as any type of insult. Yes, in a sense, fantasy is a rejection of the world as such, but fantasy uh, in literature is, is also a way to enliven the world. A few banal fi- fantasies float across white evangelicalism. Uh, one of the fantasies is the obsession for evangelicals uh, to, and uh, I guess it's an obsession, but also just a tireless pastime that they never tire of arguing about hell or substitutionary atonement or biblical inerrancy. It never misses an opportunity to judge women or non-heteronormative sexuality. But if my claim is that white evangelicalism as a political project today is quite recent, then I'm also claiming that all of the older ideas of its uh, 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 you know, biblicality is utterly irrelevant. To the vacuous believer of evangelicalism wishing to argue today, the way I see it, there's only one holy traditional doctrine in evangelicalism bar none. And this type of, it is this type of already forgiven chosenness that is its ultimate fantasy. Chosenness encapsulates so many more specific doctrines in evangelicalism, such as atonement and afterlife and the perspicuity or clarity of scripture and predestination, the inability to lose one's salvation, and so on and so forth. This is all the theological hope and the the desire of the evangelical. This is very different from the concept of chosenness found in the Hebrew Bible. I'm saying that essentially evangelicals saw the story of Abraham blessing, uh, of Abraham's blessing, and coveted the shit out of that story for themselves. And in their hands, the story of the blessing and chosenness of Abraham mutated into a fucking bloated, Christianized simulacrum cobbled together from election and pretentiousness and white settler colonialism, imperialism, and my strange addiction level of hoarding, wealth, and labor exploitation. Chosenness to them means the believer has direct access to a divine knowledge that the unbeliever does not. And taking chosenness for its use was a double theft committed by the supersessionism on the one hand and the racism of the evangelical church on the other. Theological chosenness in this vein bleeds into racial or national chosenness like a manifest destiny. The chosen believer is assured that he's a member not only of the true faith, but the correct lifestyle, the blessed nation, and so on and so forth, making their way of life normative. 
every other doctrine for the evangelical church, whether they realize it or not, they will show it to be disposable. We call this in evangelicalism, quote unquote, simple gospel. As, uh, as white evangelicals uh, continue to drop theological jargon and identify more directly with white nationalism or alt-right or proud boys or whatever else, then the true doctrinal core still remains true and can be observed in action. The chosenness means never second-guessing your narcissism or your cruelty. So what all these fantasies end up doing is justifying certain behaviors that the believer couldn't justify otherwise. I should say I'm not a psychoanalyst. Merely, I'm an observer of the theory. Uh, But in psychoanalysis, the term for these actions is called acting out. So acting out is a kind of display, and it displays angst as if it's an actor on a stage. So the child acts out to display frustration. The adult has a midlife crisis to show himself less dull, or the liberal technocrat declares itself a member of the quote-unquote hashtag resistance. Uh, Acting out might produce real effects in the world, but its purpose is to display itself, not to achieve any goals. It's to express uh, to the world, to justify, to express themselves. In the form of faith in evangelicalism, acting out is what happens when a community can only reward behavior that is filled with anxiety, but it's never genuine. So the believer wants to display uh, their piety or their fidelity to the faith or the community to prove themselves worthy or better than the rest. The believer is acting out for a God. At least that's what they think they're doing. Uh, but actually, it's just narcissism. Just as today's white Christian influencers must always display their perfect world on social media, or on the flip side, but the very same coin, must always display their imperfect world on social media, the believer must always act out on a false display of perfection or imperfection, so long as chosenness is still the thing being acted out. I'm claiming that all of this acting out, all of this anxiety and turmoil that goes into keeping up this act, I'm claiming that's all something that the evangelicals actually enjoy. At least they prefer those feelings of anxiety and turmoil. They prefer that to shame. And that is the interesting thing here, because I have been scratching my head and in evangelicals' literal revulsion to shame. There's literal seminars just, don't feel shame, don't feel shame. If you're sure that you're chosen, you never have to wonder if you're wrong. Right? Evangelicals should feel shame in working to make the world worse. It's a faith, though, that's uniquely designed to defend against shame. Right? If, you are not, if you're sure that you're chosen, then you never have to wonder about whether what you did was wrong or shameful. So, look, me talking to you is not an exhaustive history of white evangelicalism, nor does it detail each and every problem in the world that dena- demands analysis today. If you, want to, uh, if you want me to follow a more amiable definition, one that's sweeter and cuter, like David B.'s quadrilateral of whatever, or something like that, uh, or if you think that things really possibly couldn't decay into the tragic hierarchy of contempt and absolute dark town black hole, dark town USA, that is the world in which white evangelicalism still holds sway, then stop listening. Shut me off. This is a shitpost podcast. I'm not going to be nice here. I want to be very clear about this. My claim about evangelicalism is nothing short of this. White evangelicalism is far and away the most dangerous faith the world has ever known 
in this blasted Anthropocene, and we need to consider its justifications and appetite and its seduction and its catastrophe and its potential for evil. If climate change is indeed the greatest threat to civilization that has ever faced, uh, the world has ever faced, then a faith that is aiding and abetting it so casually as the world is collapsing must face staunch criticism and opposition from people who claim to follow Jesus. So there, that was some shit. Leave voice messages or whatever. I think that's a a feature on this thing. You can have my number if you want. We can figure this out. I'm going to go eat a sandwich, uh, maybe a burrito. Yeah, until next episode, but always remember, never forget, burn Babylon down. Oh, 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 oh,